you for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We are now continuing with Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism with Roy Shulman. Hi, this is Roy Shulman and welcome once again to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the completion, the full realization of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Well, today's show is going to be one of my absolute favorite topics and perhaps one of the topics that's most relevant to the theme of the show because on the Jewish calendar, this evening begins Passover. And I think that most of our listeners, uh, if you're Christian at all, know that Good Friday took place essentially on Passover, and that the Last Supper was a Passover Seder, that Jesus was crucified on Passover. And that is not a coincidence. That is, in fact, the ultimate illustration of the fact that the Catholic Church and her sacraments are the fulfillment of Judaism, the transformation of Judaism, after the coming of the Jewish Messiah. So, um, and I want to try to kind of explain that today. Uh, and by the way, for technical reasons, we are not in a position to take calls today. I apologize for that. So I will simply uh, begin with this, to me, extremely exciting theme. And I'm going to begin giving the answer by asking a few questions. In other words, I'm going to begin by I, I'm going to begin the explanation by asking a few questions. I know that you can't answer, but you can perhaps, you know, pose the questions to yourselves. Question number one: When and where did Judaism start? Question number two: When and where was the promise to send the Messiah? first made? And number three, when and where did Christianity start? Now, these questions are uh, very deep and mysterious, and uh, at least one of them is subject to alternative answers. But I would like to suggest that for the sake of today's discussion, we can consider that the uh, answer to the where, where did Judaism start, where was the promise of the Messiah first made to the Jews, and where did Christianity start, all have the same answer in the very same place. And that place in the days of the Old Testament was called Mount Moriah, and that place in the days of the New Testament was called Mount Calvary. And in fact, on that same mountaintop, which is now in Jerusalem, Judaism started, the promise to send the Messiah to the Jews was first made. And, of course, Christianity started because it started essentially with the crucifixion of Christ. It doesn't really matter whether you consider that it started with the Last Supper or the crucifixion of Christ or uh, Pentecost Sunday when the church was born because they all took place on the same mountaintop. So, um, that's I don't know if that's a little bit of a, of a teaser, but um, with that, let me start with the historical, you know, chronological first part of the story, which is the following, which is um, 
that first question was when and where did Judaism start? And the second question was when and where was the promise of the Messiah to come first made to the Jews? Now, we all know that the Judaism began with Abraham. Abraham was the first Jew. He was born in the uh, land of the Chaldeans. God spoke to him and said, leave your land and go to a place where I uh, lead you and I will make you the father of a great nation. Abraham left his land um, he, with his wife, uh, Sarah, and ended up in what is now Israel, of course. And uh, although God had promised to make him the father of a great nation, uh, Sarah was unable to conceive. So they waited and 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 waited. And then finally, when Abraham was about 100 years old, and Sarah was long past childbearing age, she miraculously conceived, conceived the son of promise, who was named Isaac. And as soon as the boy had grown to adolescence, God turned around and asked Abraham to sacrifice him to him. To, uh, and it's at that point where I will pick up reading from the scriptures. I'm reading from Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, Abraham replied, here I am. God said, take your son, your only beloved son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took his son, Isaac, and went to the place God had told him. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on the shoulders of Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife, and they both went together up the mountain. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, I see the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, my son. When they came to the place God had told them, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Then Abraham put forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham replied, Here I am. The angel said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Okay, so this is really, you could say, it's the beginning of the Jewish people, because you see here that God says, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you and multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore and so forth. 
so it's the promise to make Abraham the father of a great nation, which is, of course, the clan of the Jews. But then in the same sentence, the angel says, and in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And that has always been seen both in Judaism and um, in Christianity as the promise to send the Messiah through the seed of Abraham. So that is, in fact, the first explicit promise in to the Jewish people to send the Messiah and to send the Messiah through the seed of Abraham, through the Jewish people. Now, why is this interesting? It's interesting, first of all, Mount Moriah, as I mentioned earlier in the show, Mount Moriah is in fact in Jerusalem. And if you go to Jerusalem, you can go to the Temple Mount, and the Temple Mount is in essentially the top of Mount Moriah. And you can actually even see the very large stone on which Abraham bound Isaac for the sacrifice. It's on the top of the Mount uh, Temple Mount inside what is now, unfortunately, uh, the, the Dome of the Rock. And that is the very place where, where Abraham bound Isaac for sacrifice. You can walk about 500 yards down the street along the same mountain ridge, and you come to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is, of course, where the crucifixion took place. The picture of um, Abraham leading Isaac up on Mount Moriah for the sacrifice is a picture in advance of, of course, the crucifixion that took place on the very same mountain. Abraham, the, the father, takes his only beloved son, Isaac, lays the wood for the sacrifice on his shoulders, and takes him up the mountain, the very same mountain where God the father took his only beloved son, Jesus, laid the wood for his sacrifice, the cross, of course, on his shoulders, and led him up the same mountain. When they got up to the top of the mountain, of course, Abraham bound his son Isaac to the, to the wood. Uh, uh, in fact, the name for this um, event in Jewish history is known as the binding in Judaism. And, of course, on the top of the very same mountain, God bound his only beloved son, Jesus, to the wood of the cross, nailed him to the wood of the cross in the very same place. And it's Abraham's willingness to sacrifice his son, which was reciprocated, one could say, 2,000 years later, by God sacrificing his only son um, through the seed of Abraham in the very same place. Now this, of course, um, the angel stopped the sacrifice of Isaac, and Abraham looked around and saw a ram caught by his horn in a thicket, which was substituted for Isaac. But note that when they were climbing up the mountain, and Isaac asked, I see the wood and the knife, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice, my father? He answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, my son. God himself did provide the lamb for the sacrifice 2,000 years later, the true sacrifice, which remitted the sins of the world, took, you know, um, made atonement for all of the sins of mankind, which of course was the true sacrifice, which was the sacrifice of Jesus. Now that ram, which was offered in the place of Isaac, was the very first Jewish sacrificial ram or lamb, and every Jewish sacrificial lamb from then until 
Christ simultaneously looked backwards to that first sacrifice on Mount Moriah, that first Jewish sacrificial lamb, and the true lamb for the sacrifice, which would happen 2,000 years later, which is Jesus. So every Jewish sacrificial lamb, you could say, was kind of a placeholder that both looking back in time to Isaac and forwards in time to Jesus. So um, the the uh, now we're going to have to put that on the shelf for a moment, so to speak, or that passage of scripture on the shelf for a moment, and I, these will these will get woven together uh, after the discussion of the next event in Jewish history, which was an extremely Christological event. Obviously, Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac was an extremely Christological event, since it was entirely uh, a picture of the true sacrifice for the remission of sins, which would come later um, with Jesus. But let's jump or skip to another um, extremely Christological event in the history of the Jewish people. And in fact, the primary historical event, you could say, in the history of the Jewish people, in the view, in the eyes of the Jews, and that is the exodus from Egypt, the years of slavery, the centuries of slavery in Egypt, followed by the exodus from Egypt. And uh, I hope that most of us know this story, but I will very briefly recap it in order to show its Christological content and also to set the stage for talking about the real culminating point of this discussion today, which is why the crucifixion had to take place on Passover and why the Last Supper, which was, of course, the first Catholic Mass, had to be a Passover Seder. Remember, the Jews celebrate the Passover Seder tonight, so perhaps, with your indulgence, we can consider this entire show a kind of uh, prayer for the conversion of the Jewish people, a prayer that the Jewish people could even understand the cosmic significance of these aspects of Judaism events in Jewish history in their full glory, which of course is only revealed in uh, Christianity and uh, frankly more specifically in the Catholic Church, since as we will see in a few moments, this discussion will become intensely Eucharistic relatively soon. So with that, let's go to the Exodus from Egypt. Now, you all know the story, I think, that uh, the Jews ended up in slavery in Egypt for something over 400 years. God raised up a deliverer for them, Moses. Moses went to Pharaoh and performed, uh, or God enacted, or God, God performed a number of miracles through Moses and uh, in order to convince the Pharaoh to allow the Jews to leave. The Pharaoh was a very hard sell, and he only eventually, finally, did allow the Jews to leave when Moses, um, or God, performed the tenth and final miracle, known as the plagues. And the tenth plague was the slaying of all of the firstborn in Egypt, both man and beast, uh, except for the firstborn of the Jews. And the way that the angel of death, which was sent to Egypt that night in order to slay all the firstborn, knew 
which was a home of the Jews and therefore not to slay the firstborn, was that God commanded that all of the Jews sacrifice a spring lamb without blemish and without breaking any of its bones, sacrifice the lamb, roast it, um, eat it in its entirety, and uh, sprinkle some of its blood on the doorpost of their house uh, on that first Passover night. That's why it's called Passover. That was the night that the angel of death was going to pass over the houses in Egypt and kill all the firstborn. The Jews were spared this because they sprinkled the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house. Um, when the Pharaoh saw this miracle, he finally relented and allowed the Jews to leave. Let me, I will move ahead with what happened the next day, so to speak, but first let me point out two things. One is that it's already intensely Christological. I think we'll you'll see. Because, number one, the plague was to kill all of the firstborn. And one could say that Jesus, Jesus wasn't literally the firstborn son. He was the only born son of God. Born may not even be the right word, but um, certainly not created, whatever the right word is, the only son of God. And so whenever you see a, uh, a firstborn, there's something which is a little bit of an echo, of course, of, of God's own son. And then even more so, what saved the Jews from the angel of death was the blood of the lamb on the wooden doorpost and lintel of the house, which is a picture, of course, of the blood of Jesus on the cross. And the lintel and the doorpost, if you think of how a house is built, there's a cross there, right? The lintel goes across the doorposts. And so you have uh, the blood on the cross being what truly saves us from the angel of death. However, going back into the Jewish context now, so um, the Pharaoh then allowed the Jews to leave, but he quickly changed his mind and the Jews got to the shore of the Red Sea and Pharaoh had sent his army after them, and the Jews were about to be wiped out or brought back into slavery. They were trapped there between the Pharaoh's army and the shore of the Red Sea. When God performed another miracle through Moses and uh, split the waters of the Red Sea, and the Jews were able to cross through dry shod without even getting their feet wet, and as soon as the last of the Jews had crossed the Red Sea, the waters were allowed to flow back again and the entire Egyptian army was drowned and the Jews were then saved. But they were, of course, in the desert and they were in the desert with a long way to go and without any food or water, in fact, or not much food on water, I should say, because that journey ended up taking them 40 years. A lot of the details of the story I'm going to have to skip, including why it took them so long. But in any case, they found themselves in the desert, and then they spent the next 40 years uh, crossing the desert on their way to the promised land, which was Israel. Now, the uh, when they were in the desert and they ran out of food, God miraculously provided them with food, the miraculous bread from heaven, manna which sustained them in the wilderness for those 40 years. 
Now, since the very first days of Christianity, the entire story of the exodus from Egypt of the Jews was seen as a picture of Christianity because the Jews' slavery to the Pharaoh in Egypt was a picture of mankind's slavery to the power of Satan. Pharaoh as the you know evil ruler was a picture of Satan, and the Jews' slavery to Pharaoh was a picture of mankind's slavery to the power of Satan. What freed the Jews from the power of the Pharaoh was crossing through the waters of the Red Sea, which was understood to be a picture of the Christian who is freed from the power of Satan by crossing through the waters of baptism. Then the Jews had to wander for 40 years on their way to the promised land, Israel, which was a picture of the Christian wandering through the 40 or 60 or 80 years of this life to the true promised land, not the earthly Jerusalem, so to speak, but the heavenly Jerusalem, heaven. But the Jews needed sustenance to keep them alive during those 40 years, and so God gave them the miraculous bread from heaven, manna, in the wilderness to sustain them, which, needless to say, was a picture, and understood from, the, as I said, the earliest church fathers, a picture of the true miraculous bread from heaven, which is the Eucharist, and I just misspoke, because I said it was seen as a picture of the Eucharist since the days of the church father, but I could have gone farther, for, farther and said, not only by the church fathers, but by Jesus himself. And Jesus himself made that extremely explicit. So let me read the uh, passage. Actually, I'm going to read an extended passage from uh, John 6, the Bread of Life Discourse. And remember where we are. We are talking about why... We're actually talking about why the crucifixion took place on Passover. We're talking about why the... For, well, right now we're talking about the ways in which the Jews' exodus from Egypt is a picture of Christianity. I should back up because I forgot to mention something very, very important, which is Passover, <laughs> for those of you who aren't Jewish, excuse me for having assumed it, Passover is the celebration of the exodus from Egypt. That is what the Passover holiday is. It's a commemoration celebration of the exodus from Egypt on the anniversary of the exodus from Egypt. According to Jewish understanding, the uh, day of Passover is the, the, let me, the day on the calendar on which Passover takes place is the day on the calendar in, on which the Jews escape from Egypt. So it's the anniversary of the first Passover night. Um, and so every Passover is the anniversary of the first Passover night. Um, I haven't done this arithmetic, but um, so off the top of my head, it's a little risky. But I would say that right now it's about 2,500 years, the 2,600th anniversary of the first Passover night, something like that. Um, and for every, every, uh, day, uh, uh, every year, this day on the Jewish calendar, ever since then, has been celebrated as a memorial of the exodus from Egypt. So anyway, you'll see why this becomes so, well, no, I'll, I, I won't hold that out to the future, I'll say it now. You see, within Jewish theology, the um, Moses was seen as 
a type of the Messiah to come. In fact, um, Moses is called the first Redeemer, and the Messiah is called the second Redeemer, the final Redeemer, the ultimate Redeemer. Moses, uh, and because Moses is the first Redeemer and the Messiah is the ultimate Redeemer, and because Moses effected his redemption on Passover night, Jewish theology has always held that when the Messiah comes, he has to come on Passover. He will come on Passover. For instance, in the Talmud it says, quote, On that very night, Passover, know that I will redeem you. Um, uh, let me see if I have another quote here. Um, there's a, there's a, in another Midrash, In that night they were redeemed, meaning in Passover night they were redeemed, and in that night they will be redeemed, meaning on Passover night um, the Jews will be redeemed by the coming of the Messiah. And uh, St. Jerome, of course, who is a Catholic authority rather than a Jewish authority, he confirms in his commentary on the book of Matthew, he writes, It is a tradition of the Jews that the Messiah will come at midnight according to the manner of the time in Egypt when the first Passover was celebrated. So, anyway, this will all weave together, I hope. I hope at the end. I know I'm, I'm, I'm laying a lot of strands that have to get uh, a little bit more clearly woven together, but I hope I'll have the time to do that. So anyway, let me go to the Bread of Life discourse, because, because this is really kind of where the rubber meets the road. This is in John 6. It's right after the multiplication of loaves and fishes. And um, the Jews are challenging Moses, uh, excuse me, Moses, challenging Jesus. And he says, um, they say to him, what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So the Jews are challenging Jesus to perform a miracle so that they'll believe in him. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. My father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Uh, the Jews then murmured at him, because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Uh, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that a man may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my drink blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. He who eats me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread 
will live forever. This he said in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. That's all from John 6. So you see, Jesus himself is saying, the Jews are challenging Jesus. Look, Moses performed this great miracle of giving us the man in the desert, the miraculous bread from heaven. What miracle will you perform that you know proves to us that you are who you say you are, that you're sent by from God? And Moses, uh, Moses, Jesus immediately takes up the challenge and says, look, look, I am the true miraculous bread from heaven. Uh, the manna was just a picture of me. Your fathers ate the manna, but they eventually died. Whoever eats the true bread from heaven, which is my flesh, will never die. So Jesus himself is, is pointing out that the manna in the wilderness was simply a picture in advance of the true miraculous bread from heaven, which sustains the Christian in the wandering through... Well, let, let me back up. Okay, so remember where we were. We, the Jews had crossed the Red Sea. The waters of the Red Sea were a picture of the waters of baptism. Crossing the Red Sea freed them from the power of Pharaoh. Then they're wandering through the desert for 40 years on their way to Jerusalem. That's a picture of the Christian wandering through the desert of this life on the way to the true heavenly Jerusalem. And the Jews needed the miraculous bread from heaven to sustain them in the wilderness, which is only a picture of the true miraculous bread from heaven, which is the Eucharist, which sustains us in our travels through the, the desert of this life on the way to the heavenly Jerusalem. So the whole story of Exodus, the whole story of the Exodus from Egypt is a picture of Christianity. And the climax of that parallel is the uh, parallel between the manna in the wilderness and the Eucharist. The flesh, actually, the flesh and blood of Jesus himself, which, which we have in the Eucharist. Now, I better jump forward because I'm already halfway through. So let me jump forward to the Last Supper. Okay, now, with that all as backdrop, think about the Last Supper. The Last Supper was a Passover Seder. The Last Supper was celebrating the exodus from the, of the Jews from Egypt. It was, um, uh, bear with me a moment because I'm, I'm drowning here. Um, the entire Passover Seder, that's that first meal of Passover that's going to take place tonight. The entire Passover Seder is two things. Two things are going on in that Seder at once. One thing is it's a celebration of the Exodus from Egypt. It's a thanksgiving to God for the great miracle he performed in freeing the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And it is a fervent prayer for the coming of the Messiah. And those two things are interwoven throughout the Passover Seder. Why? Because, as I said, Jewish theology has always understood that when the Messiah comes, he is going to have to come at Passover. So it's celebrating the Exodus from Egypt. It's recounting the story of the miraculous uh, Exodus from Egypt. And it is, it is continually praying that God sends the Messiah 
even this Passover, since the Messiah is going to have to come on Passover. The Passover Seder, if you if you are able to go to a Jewish Passover Seder, or if you have gone to a Jewish Passover Seder, you will see or have seen, there are many references to um, the coming of the Messiah in the Passover Seder, but many of them are veiled. But what's not veiled is the references to the coming of Elijah. At every Passover Seder table, there's a place setting for Elijah the prophet. There is a cup that's known as Elijah's cup that has wine in it that is being reserved for Elijah the prophet. Near the end of the Seder, the Jews, excuse me, the children at the Seder run to the door to throw it open to see if Elijah is there, in which case they will invite him in. Why? Because um, the Old Testament makes clear that before the Messiah comes, Elijah will return to make straight the ways of the Lord and to announce the coming of the Messiah. If this is the Passover Seder at which the Messiah is going to come, then this is the Passover Seder. Basically, if this is the Passover Seder at which the Messiah is going to appear, then Elijah must come first. And that's why in the hope that this is the Seder, that that this is the Passover when the Messiah will come, in that hope, one is prepared for the coming of Elijah and prepared to welcome Elijah because, of course, you know, your heart is in your throat. If only Elijah shows up, that means that this is the Passover when the Messiah is going to come. That, um, that, anticipation or that knowledge that Elijah will come to announce the coming of the Messiah, of course, comes from Malachi. The passage says in Malachi 4, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Now, this should uh, sound familiar to um, Christians who know the New Testament, because um, when the angel announced to Zechariah the, the coming birth of John the Baptist, he said to Zechariah that um, the child to come will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. That's a, that's a quote from that prophecy in Malachi, to, that he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And Jesus himself said, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is none greater than John the Baptist, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So, so anyway, so um, all of the references to Elijah in the Passover Seder are actually references to the fact that this is all a prayer that um, this be the Passover when the Messiah comes. And the closing words of the Passover Seder are uh, next year in Jerusalem. And this doesn't refer to the hope of the Jews that they will, you know, take a vacation in Jerusalem next year. It's a reference to the fact that um, the Jewish theological understanding from the Old Testament is that when the Messiah comes, all of the Jews will be miraculously reassembled in Jerusalem. So when they're saying next year in Jerusalem, what they're saying is, well, the pa this Passover isn't the Passover when the Messiah came, 
let next Passover be the Passover when the Messiah comes. So, so um, the Exodus from Egypt is all about the future coming of the Messiah. The Passover Seder is all about the future coming of the Messiah. And when the Messiah came, we know, in a sense, he really did come on Passover because Jesus redeemed us. He redeemed us on Good Friday. He redeemed us on Passover. So it was a fulfillment of the um, understanding in Judaism that when the Messiah redeems us, he will redeem us on Passover. Check. Done. And um, the other uh, aspect of that is that, well, I shouldn't say the other aspect of that. That's, that's not doing it justice. But when the Messiah when the Messiah came to redeem mankind, he redeemed him on Passover. And the um, I don't want to get in too much trouble with this theology, so I'm 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 trying to tread lightly. Our redemption came from the cross, but the um, uh, bringing the reality of that redemption to us in its fullest form during our lives comes from receiving the Eucharist. And so the, the, um, the fact that the first mass, see, the first mass was a Passover Seder and every, right, the last supper and every mass since the last supper is, uh, harkens back in a sense to the last supper. I don't think I can do this. I'm, I'm just going to backpedal from that because I don't want to, um, I don't want to garble things and I, I'm, I'm not doing it successfully right now. So I'm not going to, um, go there right now. Um, let me go someplace else, which is, um, okay. So the Passover Seder was always a anticipation of the coming of the Messiah and it's centered on the Passover lamb and every Passover lamb I mean, at the center of the table at every Passover in the days of the temple, the Jew, every Jewish family would have to take a spring lamb to the temple to be sacrificed, and then they would take home that lamb and they would um, they would present it for the Passover meal, for the Passover Seder meal. Um, that lamb was looking back; the sacrificed Passover lamb was, uh, I guess, looking in three directions at once. It was looking back to the lamb that was sacrificed in the place of Isaac on Mount Moriah, the very beginning of the promise of the descent the Messiah. It was looking forward to the true sacrifice to bring about the redemption of man, right? God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice, my son, as Abraham said to Isaac going up Mount Moriah. And it was also pointing back to the Passover lamb that was used in Egypt at the time of the Exodus, to spare the Jews from the um, angel of death. The, um, there were very specific rules for the presentation of that Passover lamb. And I will read those rules from um, a Jewish source, if I can find the page, and from a Catholic source. And you will see where I'm going with this. Um... Okay, from the Talmud, 
uh, the, the description of how that Passover lamb on the Seder table would be presented. Thin, smooth staves of wood are thrust through the shoulders of the lamb in order to hang it and skin it, and then a skewer of pomegranate wood is thrust through the Passover lamb from its mouth to its buttocks. So one skewer is stretched across through the shoulders of the lamb, and another skewer from its mouth to its buttocks. Now, two centuries after Christ, or actually one second century after Christ, St. Justin Martyr described the Passover lamb, which is presented in that way, uh, as it's required or described in the Talmud. And these are the words from St. Justin Martyr. For the lamb which is roasted is roasted and dressed up in the form of a cross. For one spit is transfixed right through from the lower parts up to the head, and one across the back to which are attached the legs of the lamb. So you see, the lamb, when it's presented on the Passover table, is essentially, looks like it's crucified. One, one uh, uh, skewer of wood, horizontally, across the shoulders, from foreleg to foreleg, and another skewer of wood, vertically, from the back of the head through the buttocks. And um, uh, from Anne Catherine Emmerich's description of the Passover lamb uh, present on the table at uh, the Last Supper. I'll just read the paragraph from Anne Catherine Emmerich. She was a visionary. Uh, she's a blessed. She was a, a visionary, mystic, victim soul, nun of the 19th century. And this is the passage from her visions. Meanwhile, the son of Simeon had completed the preparation of the lamb. He passed a stake through its body, fastening the front legs on a cross piece of wood and stretching the hind ones along the stake. It bore a strong resemblance to Jesus on the cross, and it was placed in the oven to be there roasted. So even the Passover lamb on the table at every Jewish Passover, presumably from when the Jews arrived in, in, in Israel, you know, 40 years after the uh, Exodus, until the days of Jesus, the lamb on the Passover table would be crucified. It would be already a picture of the true Passover lamb to be sacrificed, which of course was Jesus, who was sacrificed on Passover. Now, there are many, many, many parallels between... Um, between the uh, Jewish understanding of the Passover Seder. I, I don't want to overstate that, so let me put it another way. There are, there are prefigurements in the Jewish understanding of the Passover Seder that are prefigurements of the Mass. For instance, um, it is from the Old Testament, it says, basically, that any Jew who does not participate in the Passover Seder is cut off from eternal life. Um, uh, he's cut off from, he's essentially cut off from eternal life. He's cut off from salvation. There's a long discussion there that I would have to go into. But it's from the book of Numbers, and um, the passage says that anyone who refrains from keeping the Passover 
shall be cut off from his people. And um, the salvation in Judaism comes from one's membership in the Jewish people. So one's cut off from salvation. And the requirement is not only to celebrate the Passover, but actually to eat of the Passover lamb is part of that requirement, which sounds a lot like what Jesus said in John 6 when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. So you have a foreshadowing here in the Passover Seder of the fact that as, as according to the words of Jesus, participating in the Eucharist is a precondition to eternal life. I know that the church's understanding is not that this can't be taken entirely at face value, but let me present it um, you know, in the words of Jesus, it certainly sounds like, unless, as he says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, um, and I will raise him up in the last day, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. So it certainly sounds like it, and it is very parallel to the Jewish understanding that unless you eat the flesh of the Passover lamb, you have no share in the redemption of the Jews. Uh, another parallel is that when one participates in the Passover Seder, and this is explicit in the Passover Seder, you are not to think that you are simply participating in a commemora commemoration of something that happened thousands of years ago. When you participate in the Passover Seder, you are participating in the exodus from Egypt. You are participating in the redemption that took place during the exodus from Egypt. It is a being present at the exodus, uh, which is obviously a foreshadowing of the fact that the Catholic Mass is not just a commemoration of Jesus' sacrifice, but being present at the Catholic Mass is going backwards through time and being present in a spiritual way, being actually present at Jesus' sacrifice and, and receiving the graces of that sacrifice in a being present sort of way and not just in a kind of memorial remembrance kind of way. Um, I, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a priest, so um, take, I mean, you know, I'm not I'm not expressing this with the necessary precision, I guess I'd say, but I I am I think painting a correct picture, uh, even if every precise little pencil line is not the correct theological formulation. Um, and if it isn't, I apologize. So other uh, parallels, let's say, between the Catholic Mass and the Passover Seder, um, the, uh, the Jewish theology from before the days of Christ, of course, asked the question, after the Messiah comes, will the sacrifices continue? Because if you look at the Old Testament, there are any number of types of sacrifices that the Jews had to 
perform in the temple. They they had wave offerings, they had grain offerings, they had uh, sin offerings, they had Thanksgiving offerings, and so forth and so on. And the rabbis asked the question, after the Messiah comes, will all of these offerings or sacrifices cease? And the answer in the Talmud is that after the, uh, all will cease except the Thanksgiving sacrifice. What's Eucharist mean? It's Greek for Thanksgiving. So the Talmud itself says that after the Messiah comes, the only sacrifice which will persist, will continue after the coming of the Messiah, is the Eucharist, is the Thanksgiving sacrifice. Um, the Jewish theology, again in the Talmud, asks the question, you see, since... Since Moses was um, caused the manna in the desert to descend, I'll, I'll just read the Midrash. As the first redeemer caused manna to, manna to descend, as it is stated, because I shall cause to rain bread from heaven for you, Exodus 16, so will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend. In other words, since Moses was a forerunner of the Messiah and a picture in advance of the Messiah, and was the first redeemer. The question is, will the Messiah, that is the second redeemer, cause manna to descend from heaven because Moses caused manna to descend from heaven? And the answer is yes. So will the latter redeemer cause manna to descend, which he does. The true manna, the true miraculous bread from heaven, the Eucharist. Again, uh, in the uh, Jewish scriptures, in the... Uh, not in the Old Testament, but in the Talmudic scriptures. Uh, it says, quote, You will not find manna in this age, but you shall find it in the age after the Messiah comes. Isn't that neat? In other words, God rained down miraculous bread from heaven in between the exodus from Egypt and the arrival in the promised land. That was the that age. Then this age which is between then and the coming of the Messiah, there is no manna, but after the Messiah comes, manna will resume. And aren't we blessed? We, we are the beneficiaries of that resumption of manna. And finally, in the Jewish Apocrypha, there it says, quote, in the second Baruch, after the Messiah is revealed, the treasury of manna will come down again from on high, and they will eat of it in those days, because these are they who will have arrived at the consummation of time. So, and we are they who have arrived at the consummation of time. Aren't we blessed? We have arrived, we are living after the Messiah has come, and we are participating in the redemption that the Messiah has brought. And not only, we don't even have to die. We have to die before we get to participate in the fullness of the redemption which he brought, which is um, an eternity of bliss in heaven. But even between birth and death, we can participate in the um, redemption which he has brought every time that we participate in the Mass and receive the manna from heaven, receive his body, blood, his body, blood, flesh, and divinity um, in the Eucharist. We are... We are participating in what he what he brought to mankind we're participating in the um, 
true exodus, in the true redemption of mankind. We are participating in the Last Supper. Do this in memory of me. We are participating in the sacrifice on Calvary, and we are reaping the graces that he brought all of mankind. And that is all. We are benefiting from the fullness of that gift, and the Jews tonight in their Passover Seder will be enacting this anticipation of that gift, not knowing not knowing that it's arrived in all of its fullness. So let me close with a repetition that let the show be entirely a prayer, so to speak, that the Jews, as the First Vatican Council said, finally exhausted by a weight no less futile than long, hasten to recognize their Messiah. Let me read that prayer. I, I, I should have it within reach here. Um, although... I never have what I hope to have within reach. Um, okay, here I have it. Okay, this is this is a, the pr- a prayer from the First Vatican Council, and I'll be uh, closing obviously the show with this prayer. The undersigned fathers of the council humbly yet urgently pray that the Holy Ecumenical Council of the Vatican come to the aid of the unfortunate nation of Israel with an entirely paternal invitation that finally exhausted by a weight no less futile than long, the Israelites hasten to recognize the Messiah, our Savior Jesus Christ, truly promised to Abraham and announced by Moses, thus completing and crowning, not changing, the religion of Moses. So, with that, we've come to the end of our time for today. You've been listening to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with your host, me, Roy Showman, on Radio Maria. And um, happy Palm Sunday tomorrow. Happy Passover tonight. And uh, I pray that we all have a very, very holy and recollected Holy Week and a glorious Easter. And let me go out with a, um, uh, if I can get the, the um, <laughs> if I can get the, the uh, technical thing here to work, which I think I can, let me go out with a very joyful Passover um, song, the Dayenu. The, the Jews among our listeners will recognize the song, but it is a celebration of all of the miracles that God performed for the Jews in the Exodus from Egypt, and would that the Jews add to those miracles, the miracles, the ultimate miracles, the ultimate gifts, the ultimate redemption he gave us in Jesus Christ. So with that, let me try to pull up that music. Shabbat only given us the Shabbat, it would have been enough. The Shabbat dying, die, die, no, die, die, no, die, die, no, die, no, die, no, die, no, die, die, no, die, die, no, die, die, no, 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 die,
the Torah only given us the Torah it would have been enough the Torah die no die die no die die no die die no die no die no die no die die no die die no die die no die no die no had he brought us out of Egypt only brought us out of Egypt he had brought us out of Egypt die no die die